When we stop trying to control the social narrative, I think we can uh, make central again the thing that really matters, which is the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The message of Christ can once again become as shocking and subversive as it actually is. And when we realize that we as Christians aren't in control of society anymore, it gives us permission to step down and let God be in control again, because he is. Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Hey everyone, welcome back to Cafe Gresham Brit. It's great to have you here in our little home coffee shop. I hope you feel very welcome and I hope my um, semi-paralyzed face isn't too distracting for you tonight as you get a slightly more close up on my face. We have come to the final week uh, in a series looking at the the book of Colossians. Uh, We started six weeks ago actually in Philemon, uh, which was the letter that came alongside this letter to the Colossians uh, and gave us a little bit of context. And here we find ourselves not necessarily at the end of the book of Colossians, but at the end of the main argument that uh, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, makes between uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and where we land today. And we've been looking at how this letter, amongst other things, is a call to reconciliation. It's about reconciling uh, the world and how Jesus has done that. It's about reconciling to ourselves. It's about reconciling to our friends. And ultimately what we're talking about um, tonight is what it means to reconcile and be reconciled to our culture. Now, the way that we're going to do this is where we're tackling a passage that I think has actually been badly misinterpreted uh, for a lot of Christian uh, history and certainly uh, in the church today. And so what I want to do is actually we're going to read the passage twice. We're going to read it once right at the start. Then we're going to unpack a little bit of context around this book and what Paul uh, might be trying to say uh, or, or his original intent. And then we're going to read it one more time and see how it reads differently with just a little bit of context. So let's get straight into it. Um, if you have a Bible handy, open it up to uh, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from 18 to 25. And I'm going to chuck in uh, chapter 4 verse 1 just as a little bonus for you. So, Colossians 3, starting from 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting with the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and with reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So what is it that we have just read? Well, with no context, without thinking about what comes before or after, 
What we're kind of reading is just a random list of commands, isn't it? It addresses three different relationships, husbands and wives, uh, children and fathers and masters and slaves. And then it says, um, sort of generally speaking, whatever it is you do, whatever role you play in life, play that role as if for the Lord. Now, in isolation, it kind of reads, like I said, it's just like an arbitrary list of commands. And in the past, I think people have used this passage, or I know that people have used this passage to establish some kind of hierarchy within Christian households, within families. I also know uh, that some people have used this to suggest that um, slavery is biblical. And on the flip side, some people have actually criticized uh, Paul for not condemning slavery in this passage. You know, it won't surprise you to hear that. I don't think that that's quite the point that Paul is trying to make here. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here in this passage. You see, what I think is actually happening here is uh, the, the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, is trying to help the, the church in Colossae understand how to live in a culture where they don't belong. You see, throughout the rest of the book, um, everything that we've gone through so far, and I really encourage you um, to listen to this message in the context of the whole series, because it'll make a lot more sense that way. But what Paul has outlined so far is a new vision for humanity, where the old structures uh, that define us, our, uh, our gender, whether we're our, our freedom, whether we're master or slave, uh, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, those things don't define us anymore when we're part of the family of Christ, because Christ died for all of us. And, and now we can all sit at the table together with him, both metaphorically and in reality. As, as Christ established a new world order, a new way of being through his death and resurrection and promised to return uh, and, and fulfill, uh, bring his kingdom in fullness, uh, we have become citizens of Christ's future reality living in the now. And so the, what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to kind of wrestle with this new reality. This, 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 we're living in these in-between times. And he's answering the question, well, what do, we, how, what do we do now? Do we chuck away all of the old institutions and do we, do we you know, be, become a, a Christian commune? Which might sound ridiculous, but that's exactly what the Jerusalem church did. We read about it in, in Acts 2. They sold everything they had and they lived with a common purse. So Paul's, Paul's trying to answer the question, so what do we do now? Do we, do we chuck everything out or do we continue to live within the society that we're in now, even as broken as it is? And that's kind of where he lands, isn't it? We're supposed to live within the institutions that we have now, but we're supposed to redefine those institutions by the love of Jesus. So how do we get there? How do we get to that interpretation from what we've just read? I'm so glad you asked. Let's find out more. You know, when we read through the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, I think it's tempting sometimes to think that the world of Jesus, the world of Paul was a simpler time. 
But the reality is that's not true at all. You see, as the Roman Empire uh, expanded throughout the Mediterranean and absorbed different cultures and languages and practices, their vision was to create uh, like one society uh, where, where everyone could be free and safe and live happily. But the reality is that with so many different groups and cultures and social forces, it was a really, really confusing and difficult time. And particularly for the, the people of the early church, they were faced enormous, enormous social and societal pressures to blend into pre-existing groups that people understood. And so for the early church, they faced this really, really difficult uh, task at the beginning of defining what exactly they were. Were they just a, a Jewish offshoot community? Uh, were they um, another Roman were they worshipping another Roman god or were they something in the middle? What exactly was the Christian church? And the early Christians, they really walked a, a difficult tightrope. And I want to just highlight to you two particular forces that were, were pushing against the, Christian, the early Christian church uh, big time. And the first one was coming from the, the Jews. Remember, Christianity uh, it has its roots in Judaism. And there was an immense pressure from the Jews for the early Christians to maintain uh, all of the laws and commands of the Torah. Now, this wasn't some arbitrary, uh, you know, follow these rules or else. When you read through the Old Testament, you realize that it's the story of the relationship between the Jewish people and their, their one creator God. Um, and, and the sometimes tumultuous relationship uh, between the two. And it was all because... Um, the Jewish people struggled so hard to follow the, the laws and commands handed down from God himself. And it's this story of uh, unfaithfulness and problems and turbulence. Um, and, but all the time, there's this promise that this Messiah will come uh, who will make all things right. And the Jews of Jesus' day were very, very aware of that story. And so uh, there was this huge push from groups like the Pharisees, and the Sadducees to be absolutely, totally faithful to God's word. And so it came out of a really good place because they wanted to see God's promised Messiah in their own lifetimes. And as you can imagine, as this Christian group, uh, these Christians following uh, this person, Jesus, who was supposedly the Messiah, but he'd been crucified, as that, this group started to emerge and gain traction, you can imagine that the Jews were really, really concerned that this was another group of people who were being unfaithful to God and to the Torah. And so there's this deeply embedded uh, root within Jewish society, many of whom became Christians, to continue to follow uh, the commands of the Torah in faithfulness to God. And so uh, in order to main, as well, in order to maintain a good relationship with the Jewish community, uh, a lot of these Christians were really pushing for continued observance of all of the laws in the Torah. On the other side, there was an intense pressure from within Roman society. Now, what was that all about? Uh, something that I only realized recently is that when uh, the general Pompey uh, marched into Jerusalem in 63 BC, 63 years before Christ, um, when, he, when he took over Jerusalem, one of the things that the Romans realized is that they had to make certain concessions um, to the groups that they, they took over to, so that they could continue to live in peace. And so... Uh, what Pompey did for the Jews was absolutely unheard of. He allowed them to worship just their God. 
You see, for the Romans, religion, uh, civil religion was a really important part of their strategy for colonizing the Mediterranean. Uh, they had this whole pantheon of all these different gods, one of whom was the emperor himself. And so worshiping the emperor was part of being, was part of Roman society. And if you didn't do that, uh, it was seen as really uh, disobedient. And so that's part of why the early Christians were actually called atheists, because they refused to worship Caesar. But anyway, so the Romans give the Jews an exemption to not have to worship the pantheon of gods, but just to worship their own God. And that was a massive deal. That was a huge privilege in Roman society. And it worked because the Jews were a very tightly defined ethnic group. You know, there wasn't any uh, confusion about whether you were Jewish or not in that time. But the problem is when the Christians came along, they were monotheistic. They refused to worship the Roman gods and to worship Caesar. But you didn't have to be Jewish to be one of these Christians. And so you can start to see where this problem emerges, where you're, you know, if you're an upstanding member of Roman society, you're expected to worship Caesar. And the Jews, they don't have to worship Caesar, but you can say, oh, well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm not going to worship Caesar. So you can imagine the kind of social uh, problems that that would create for the Romans. And so you have these Christians who on one side are being encouraged to uh, faithfully stay, r- remain faithful to the Torah by the Jews. And from the Romans, they're, they're under all this pressure to, um, you know, you can worship your God, but you need to come and worship Caesar as well. And so what do the Christians do? Do they remain a Jewish offshoot? Do they follow all the customs uh, and force people to convert to Judaism in order to be Christians? Or do they join in the kind of moral and religious free-for-all that was Roman society? And, you know, this isn't some arbitrary debate about which set of rules we want to follow. This is the Christian church trying to figure out how they're going to survive as a movement and how they were going to define themselves within all of these pre-existing groups in Roman society. And this is the backdrop, really, to this book of Colossians and to the story of Philemon and Onesimus that follows alongside. And uh, I'd encourage you to listen to that first talk uh, if you haven't already. You know, in this book, Paul is saying, well, we're not going to just be a Jewish offshoot, but we're not going to um, throw out all the rule book and just be... Uh, kind of go on a pagan free-for-all, we're actually going to define a new way. We're going to be this radically inclusive uh, community where it doesn't matter if you're male or female, uh, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, you're all welcome around the table. Everyone everyone can be part um, of, of this new faith community following after Jesus. But also there are certain expectations that we have um, around what it means to be a part of that community, how to live well together. And so as, as Paul comes towards the end of this argument, you can almost hear the question being asked, well, how do we live then? How, do we, how are we supposed to exist uh, as this new kind of humanity within the current social structures that exist? And that's where this passage comes in. It's kind of like whenever, whenever you hear a preacher giving a talk, I do this all the time, and they sort of, they talk about something and then they say, I'm not saying this, and I'm not saying this, what I'm saying is this. And this is, that's exactly what uh, Paul is doing here. He's saying, we're not going to chuck out uh, all of the, the structures that we have in society. We're going to continue to live in families uh, in a way that's respectful to our culture. 
Uh, we're gonna continue to do the master-slave thing, which by the way, meant something very different uh, to what we would understand from the last 500 years of history. It wasn't great, but it was different to what we tend to think of in terms of slavery. Uh, you know, fathers and children continue to respect each other as is respectable uh, in Roman society. But let's do it in a way that's radically different to, the, to what has been set up uh, by previous generations. Let's do it in a way that is marked by the love of Jesus, where even though we still exist in these structures, we know that we're all one in Christ Jesus as well. It's not a political revolution that we're starting. It's not a social revolution that we're starting. It's a revolution of the heart for individuals, and it's a revolution of the shared life for communities. So what I want to do now is I want to read this passage again. I'm actually going to start from verse 17 this time because I kind of feel like the subtitle that the NIV uh, gives us sort of separates out these verses in a way that's a bit unhelpful. So I'm going to read this passage again, and I wonder if it's going to read a bit differently with a little bit of context. So from verse 17, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting with the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, obviously that's all well and good uh, for the people that we read about in Scripture, but what does any of this possibly have to do with us? I'm glad you asked once again, because I think that the modern church is actually facing a remarkably similar uh, dilemma, a remarkably similar identity crisis to the church uh, of, of Jesus' day, or the church of Paul's day. You know, even 30 years ago, uh, Christianity uh, would probably have been considered, um, particularly in the States, maybe a little bit here, um, to be the dominant cultural force. You know, we, we by and large, we're a Christian society. But since then, we have seen Christianity move from being dominant culture to being a subculture. And now I would suggest we've become a counterculture. The reality is that we are no longer a Christian society. And yet I feel like sometimes the church, we act as if we are. Why is that? Well, once again, I want to highlight two forces that I think are working uh, on us in our day, just like they were uh, in Paul's day, to help us understand why the shift is happening. And the first one of them is uh, everyone's favorite word in HSA English, which is postmodernism. 
Now to understand what postmodernism is, we have to first look at modernism, which came before it, uh, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. And modernism was this idea that uh, science and politics and religion and philosophy, uh, all disciplines were sort of working together to converge towards this single truth. And once we understood uh, the truth, we could build a utopian society where everyone is happy all the time. It was kind of this vision that, that there was one universal truth uh, and we were all working towards it together. But postmodernism rejects that idea of a single truth and uh, says that, that truth actually is divine by the individual that it doesn't belong to the society anymore, that everyone can define truth for themselves. In postmodernism, the highest uh, good is the happiness uh, and autonomy of the individual. And so the postmodern mantras are things like, you know, live your truth. Or the most important thing is to be who you truly are. So this is, this is postmodernism. And the other real defining marker of postmodernism, this is taking a lot of, of thought and theory into a very small package, mind you. But one of the other really important markers of postmodernism is deconstruction. Deconstruct everything. Society, family, politics, gender, religion. Take all of the assumptions that were handed down to us uh, through, through the centuries and through the millennia, chuck them out and hand it to the individual to define these things for themselves. Now, I'm not trying to make any value statements here. I'm just, just telling you uh, what's happening in our society right now as a result of postmodernism. So the first force is postmodernism. The second that goes uh, tightly in hand with it is post-Christendom. And basically what that means is exactly what I described before. It's the fact that we no longer live in a Christian society. You know, postmodernism, there's this rejection of universal truth. And along with that comes a real rejection of institutions. And when you put those things together, Christianity with its church and with its belief uh, that Jesus is truth is a real threat. It becomes a threat to individual freedom. And so we see people walking away from, uh, from Christianity and from the church in pursuit uh, of their own version of truth. Now, it's also really important to point out that I don't think that post-Christianity or post-Christendom means a return to the way things were before Christianity. What I think is happening instead is that uh, society is defining itself against Christianity. I probably don't have to convince you that for much of the last 2,000 years, uh, Western society in particular has, has been very, very highly influenced by Christian values like we've read about through the book of Colossians. And what... Uh, post-Christian society is doing is it's taking uh, the best of Christianity and removing Christ. It's the kingdom without the king, to borrow a quote from Mark Sayers. And so how, with with post-modernism and post-Christianity, post-Christendom, working together against the church, how are we supposed to respond? Well, I think there's a couple of options. One of them would be, Uh, to fight against the change, to say no to society, stop it, you don't know what you're doing, we're the church, we know what we're doing, and to really dig in our heels and try and go back to this kind of modernist interpretation of society and try and kind of drag everyone back 50 years to where we were before. Now, it should be pretty obvious that that's just not going to work. 
society is moving on and is very happy to move on in many ways. And I think it's not hard to think of examples from even the last five years where uh, the church in Australia has tried to do that and it's gone horribly. The other option is we can kind of give in to the tide of postmodernism and we can reshape Christianity. We can deconstruct Christianity and reshape it in the image of a postmodern society. And I think the problem with that is fairly obvious is that it just totally, it's so much of, uh, of, of postmodernism and, post, and post-Christian society flies in the face of the teaching of Jesus. And so I, I hope you're starting to see how I think in many ways the church in our day is facing a similar identity problem to the church in Paul's day. And I think coming back to this book uh, in its original context could actually really help us as the church today. We need to realize that we are citizens of the future kingdom who are living in a broken present system. We need to uh, realize that it's not a political or a social revolution that we need, that the need, the need we have is still the same need that we've always had. It's a revolution of the heart for individuals and a revolution of community. Uh, for shared life. I think that like Paul's saying here, rather than fight against the structures that we have now in society, we need to live within them, but redefine them radically through the love uh, and, and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so what does that look like? Well, it's all of the things that we've talked about in this series, isn't it? You know, I would, if you want to understand how to live in response, I would go back and listen to Andrew's Harvey talk, Andrew Harvey's talk from two weeks ago because I think he just nailed it. And the thing that for me really ties all of this together is the theme that we've been looking at from the start, which is the theme of reconciliation. As Christians, learning, learning how to be reconciled uh, with God, with ourselves, uh, with our communities, our friends, and with our society uh, on the whole. Now, as we draw to the conclusion of our message this evening, uh, I do want to put in an important caveat. Um, I think it's very important to tell you what I'm not saying. You all saw that coming. What I'm not saying here is that we don't fight against broken and oppressive structures. You see, as God's people, we are called uh, to fight for justice, to stand up for the poor and the oppressed, to speak out against uh, corrupt powers within our society. So I'm not saying, and I don't think Paul is saying here, that we shouldn't do that. But what I'm trying to say, uh, particularly with all this cultural commentary stuff, is that I think that we need to realize as the church that we no longer have a place in society as the moral authority. And we can't try and impose our values on society anymore. Which in some ways might seem like a terrible loss. But for me, I think it presents us with the most extraordinary opportunity that the church has had in generations. You see, I think that uh, as great as Christian society is, I think that Christianity works best when it's a radical counterculture. You know, when you look around the world, the churches 
the countries where the church is growing the fastest are the ones where the church is under the most opposition or the most oppression. You know, Christianity thrives under opposition. When we realize uh, that, well, when we stop trying to control the social narrative, I think we can uh, make central again the thing that really matters, which is the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The message of Christ can once again become as shocking and subversive as it actually is. And when we realize that we as Christians aren't in control of society anymore, it gives us permission to step down and let God be in control again, because he is. You know, I don't think that God is asleep at the wheel in our society right now. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think he has incredible things in store for his kingdom and for his church in the years to come. And I think he is getting us ready to be a part of that. And so what I believe we need to be doing right now as a Christian society is not trying to go back to where we were 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. I believe what we need to do is double down uh, our our commitment uh, to Jesus Christ and to to following his way. I think we need um, communities of faith who are are thriving quietly in the background, discipling mature, uh, committed, servant-hearted followers of Jesus. I believe we need a a quiet revolution happening as the number of cultural Christians goes down and down and down in our society. The number of Christ-like Christians starts to skyrocket. I think that's what we need to see uh, in our society. And I think we as a church need to focus uh, on discipling, on worshipping and on loving one another as community and serving beyond our walls in this time. Now, uh, I do. I probably should admit at this point that pretty much all of the cultural commentary stuff that uh, I've said tonight, I've directly lifted out uh, of a podcast. Um, it's called This Cultural Moment. It's with Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer. It's very good. Um, and so if you're interested in this stuff, if you want to learn more, if you want to kind of poke holes in all of the things that I missed in this talk, then have a listen to that podcast. There's a little graphic up on the screen um, that will show you that. And if you want to um, dig a little bit deeper than the podcast goes even, um, then there's a couple of books I can recommend uh, that I'm reading at the moment and loving. One is called Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. And uh, the second one by the same author is called Reappearing Church. Uh, And they just, it really hits well uh, on some of the stuff that we've been talking about, moving from uh, an attempt at relevance uh, towards uh, gospel perseverance. Uh, But with that, uh, with those recommendations, um, so yeah, if you have any questions, go to those resources first. Uh, But as as we draw into land, I would love to pray for us um, because I really believe that God is on the move. I believe he's doing something really special. And I think when we start to wise up to what God's doing uh, and follow his agenda uh, rather than our agenda from the past, I think it gives him permission to move in extraordinary ways. Well, Lord God, I just want to thank you that you are still in control. That even in this crazy uh, post-Christian, post-modern world where it feels like anything goes, that you know what you are doing. Lord, that you are preparing your church uh, for extraordinary things. And so, Lord Jesus, would you just show us how to play our part? Lord, as we as 
your global church, as your church in Australia, uh, wrestle with, I guess, a bit of an identity crisis in this new time, I want to pray that you would show us how to be your church, how to be the church that you always dreamed of. Lord, I want to pray that as we uh, continue to meet together in this COVID time, would you just be shaping and forming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ? Lord, I want to pray for um, mature, committed, uh, servant-hearted disciples of Jesus within our church and and within all churches around our nation and and our world. And Lord, uh, whatever you're doing in this season, uh, we just want to give you control. We want to pray that... um, that, that your will would be done in our society. Um, and in the meanwhile, God, whatever it is that we're doing, whatever we do tomorrow when we wake up in the morning, um, I want to ask that you would help us to do that with all of our hearts uh, so that even in some small way, we might be a shining example of, of Christ's love to those around us. And we pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. <laughs>